he gives invitation with challenge. Invitation with challenge. Understand, right? Come follow me, right? Come follow me. Take up your cross, deny yourself. Your mama's going to hate you. Your brother's going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. It's going to be hard. In this world, you're going to have trials and tribulations. But come follow me. Wasn't Jesus always doing that? He was issuing an invitation, but he, he did it always with challenge. Can I propose to you that much of the Western church is missing one of those components? Which one do you think we're missing? Challenge. We've gotten really good at invitation, but what do not we do so often? We don't bring in the challenge. Jesus always brought the challenge. If a church only gives the invitation and no challenge, what are we going to end up with? A bunch of narcissistic folk driven by personal preference that needs to have every itch scratched, right? That's what you end up with. And what has largely happened in Western Americanized Christianity that seeks to be cosmopolitan and market-friendly, we have propagated a gospel based on invitation, and we've minimized the challenge. We put the challenge in the small print of our commitment to Jesus, don't we? We, we, we will write out all what Jesus is going to do for you. He's going to save you from hell, and we, all these lists of benefits. But in the bottom, in the smallest print that you can't read, especially now that I'm in my 40s, I can't read anymore. Um, I, I can't make out the small print. It's the, you know, in the legal area, it's what? It's like, I got you. Did you see the little loopholes? You know, Jesus never did that, did he? He never did that. He issued the invitation with great clarity. And he also what? Issued what? The challenge. So when people began to follow Jesus... They knew exactly what they were signing up for. Do you think overall, generally speaking, we've done a good job in the Western church of doing that? I don't think so, right? And I am guilty as well, right? We want to invite, but we're kind of afraid to give the challenge because in order to present Jesus, we really need to give him an extreme home makeover, right? We really need to get him in Macy's, and we need to, you know, get him at the makeup counter, and we need to, like, really doll him up really good. Fix his hair, get the lipstick on. You, you know, you've, you've got to get the whitening treatment, you know, so we just smile, he looks really good, so we can make him so attractive that we're going to be drawn to him, so we just fix Jesus up and make him into something that he's not, in order to get people to follow him. And what happens is we end up with what kind of church? Something that's just not altogether right and, and real. And we don't represent him that well when we're doing that. It's not, it's not truth by making him attractional. He's not a Disney park. Church is not the magic kingdom. It's not Epcot. It's never, we were never called to be that. We were called to deliver a decisive message that cuts to the quick. In fact, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 4 that the Word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing between bone and marrow and soul and spirit. In other words, the Word of God is not a blunt blade. It is a sharp blade. It is piercing and is cutting. And how many of you knows, know that cutting can be a bit painful? 
So the problem is, is not only that we are not representing him right, we need to correct things a bit, and we don't need to just represent him anymore. We need to represent him in truth. It's not enough just to represent anymore. We have to represent the gospel first to ourselves and then to others. I think Jesus is standing before the church today, and he said, let me introduce myself to you. I am Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He's reintroducing himself to us because we become unfamiliar of who he really is. How many of you have been a part of an organized church for more than one year in the room? For more than one year? Put your hand up. All right. How many of you have been a part of a church for more than five years? Good. More than 12 years? More than 15 years? Still pretty good numbers, right? More than 20 years? More than 25 years? Man, y'all are good folk. More than 30 years? Anybody? Oh, look at that. 35. Do I hear 35, 35, 45, 40, 55, 35, 35, 35, 35. More than 40 years? Man, y'all didn't look that old. How about 45 years? 45? How about 50? Anybody over 50 yet? Over 50 years you were born to the altar, right? Man, so guess what? In the room, collectively, we have a lot of religious experiences, don't we? We have a lot of religious experiences, and for most of us, those years are anchored in an expression or a form of Western Americanized Christianity, most of those years, I dare say, unless you grew up in China or another part of the world, most of our years came out of that expression of Christianity. And at various levels, we have all been somewhat lied to and believed a lie and represented a lie to ourselves and to others. So one of the things that the Lord is doing right now is he is breathing on his church. And listen, this doesn't scare Jesus, okay? This... this situation we're in called religion and the spirit of religion doesn't scare Jesus. Who knows Jesus is not scared of religion. Now, when you study the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and also John, when you study the Gospels and you begin to chart the ministry of Jesus, you begin to find out really what he did and, and what his primary mission was. Jesus came primarily to his own people. Would you agree? First to the Jews, that was the, that was the primary mission of Jesus, not to the Gentiles, but specifically to the Jews. And he had a reason he came to the Jews. He was wanting to do something for his people. He was wanting to deliver them from religion. Jesus was not afraid of Jerusalem, the apex, the epicenter of Pharisaical Judaism. He went right into the middle to the temple, didn't he? He wasn't afraid of religion. That's why Jesus shows up in a Catholic mass. That's why Jesus can show up in a Baptist church service, in a Methodist church service, in a Church of Christ church service, in an Episcopal church service, in a Presbyterian church service, in a non-denominational church service, in a charismatic church service. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Jesus shows up in the middle of religion. Aren't you glad he does? Or we'd all be in deep trouble. He shows up in the middle of religion because he desires to deliver his people from religion. And he would approach the Pharisees, and he would approach those, and he would say, man, I know y'all are such religious people. You know, there are, there are 413 individual commandments in the Old Testament that they prided themselves in keeping. And rabbis and rabbinical scholars would put together so many laws and whatnot to protect these 413 
commandments and Jesus comes in, he slices right through it and says, listen, guys, all of the law and all the prophets, right, can all be summed up in two things. What? Love the Lord your Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus did for his people, called them out of religion. Can I tell you the mission of Jesus hasn't changed? He's still doing the exact same thing. Jesus is still coming to his people who are locked in the chains of religion and traditions of man and delivering us. His mission has not changed. Are you one of Jesus' people? And then guess what he's doing for you? One of the missions of Jesus in your life, the mission of the Holy Spirit, is to set all of us free from what? The tentacles and Italians of religiosity to free us back to the simplicity of following Jesus. That's what he's doing for you and for me. And it is a gift that he's given to the body of Christ right now. Is he's beginning to set us free from religion. And if you're sitting here or not, you're a part of what he's doing. But the only way to ultimately begin to get free of this is you've got to acknowledge you have it. Right? You can't say, well, I'm not religious. Well, yes, you are. Just by you saying that, let me know you are very religious. I know somebody who is so religious in his anti-religion. I have a friend of mine in ministry. He is so against religion, he has become religious in his hatred of religion. It's the most ironic, paradoxical thing you can say. It's like, brother, you are so religious, but you're just... You're just in other words, it is the ultimate enemy for all of us in the body of Christ is the spirit of religion. And we have to protect ourselves from it. We like to talk about around here, religion, if you're from the South, is like kudzu. You know what kudzu is, right? What's kudzu? Boy, it's that nasty vine that comes out in the spring and summer, and it literally does what? It grows. And, what are, and does it grow fast? Like sometimes I think it's over like, like two feet a day, some vines, because it can grow two feet a day, and it can grow up in what? It literally takes over trees, and it takes over power poles. It'll take over a house. It seeks to destroy. So religion is like kudzu. Just because you spray Roundup on it one time, it's not going to kill it, right? You can cut it back. It's going to grow again. We got to keep it always cut back because it's always seeking to grow upon us. Because there's something in our humanity, there's something in our former sin nature that likes to cling to religion and the list and the rigidity of things. And Jesus says, no, I won't let you stay there. I want you free of that mess. So in this moment that we're in then, we need to begin to reimagine the church. Reimagine the church. Not the church you came up in. Not the church you experienced for years and years and years. Though it was good or bad or ugly, whatever it might be. Right, but again, to but to but to take a moment in your own life, in your own mind, for those of you that have been in the church for over five and ten, fifteen years, said, I need to like reimagine the church and begin asking myself some really informative questions about what I believe about the church. You may have heard me tell this story before, but it reminds me of the story of the little girl that went to her mom and noticed her mom was making a ham, right, and she was going to you know, put the ham in the pot and cook the ham. But she noticed that her mom cut off like one third of the butt portion of the ham and discarded it. And the little girl asked her mom, said, mom, why did you cut that off? And the mom said, I really, you know, that's a really good question. I don't know. I just, what my mom always did. That's what my grandmother always did. So anyway, the mom was kind of curious. So she called her mom and said, hey, mom, just kind of curiosity. Little Anna asked me why we did this. Why do we cut the end of the ham off before we put it in the pot? And her mom, the little girl's grandmother, said, you know, that's a really good question. I don't know why we do that either. My, my mom always did it. So that really triggered a little bit of curiosity in her. 
And her mom happened to still be alive in her you know, late 80s. So she called her up and said, Mom, your great-granddaughter Anna asked this perplexing question, and we're just kind of curious, why do we always cut the edge off of the ham to fit in the pot before we cook it? And the great-grandmother said, well, darling, because our pan was so small, it wouldn't hold the ham, so I had to cut it in half and put the piece in. So you see what happened? A tradition developed that everybody was just doing it, and nobody ever stopped to ask why they were doing it. I propose to all of us in the room that perhaps some of the stuff that we have been doing for years and years and years and years and years, we should take a moment in time and stop and ask why. Is this what we're supposed to be doing? Is this what we are called to do? Is this contained in the authoritative scripture we should be doing? And I dare say we're going to find some information that's a little bit difficult to recognize, oh, right? Jesus told the disciples, there's so much I want to tell you, but right now you just can't endure it. You're right. Are you ready to, to begin to endure some things? To hear some things? It's hard, but it is the precursor to change. How many of you have ever known somebody that felt a little bit of sickness in their body and they put it off and put it off and put it off and put it off and then they went to the doctor and they found out they were already in stage three or stage four cancer? because they didn't address the pain in their body early enough for something to happen. Anybody ever heard a story like that before? That if they just had a went the moment they felt the pain, it would have been maybe at stage zero or stage one, but because they waited and waited and waited and waited, and it became what? Terminal. We don't want that to happen to us. We need to ask ourselves the hard questions. Go to the Holy Spirit pathologist and let him speak to our hearts and say, what are we doing? So we can begin to ask ourselves the difficult questions and to move forward. Now, when we think about the church of Jesus Christ, we begin to ask ourselves these questions. Where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? It becomes obvious, right? Where do you want to go to find out? The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me, right? Anybody can say that? I stand alone on the word of God. Well, let's do it, right? Let's go to the B-I-B-L-E. What book do you think we should go to? Not a trick question. Where did the church start? The book of Acts, right? Y'all are really good, right? Book of Acts. Any particular chapter in the book of Acts that we should go to? All right, Acts chapter 2. We call that the what? The day of Pentecost. Anybody ever heard of that chapter before? Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. They were all gathered in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, right? They were, they were praying. And what happened on the 10th day? A sound like a violent rushing wind. What happened? It filled the whole room, right? Tongues of fire set down on them. They all spoke in tongues. The Spirit gave them the utterance, and they spilled out into the street and began to preach the gospel. And, you know, that's where the story goes. We like that story, especially if you're a Pentecostal charismatic. You love that story. You love that story because you remember, perhaps, when that happened to you. Ooh, man, I remember that. I remember when that happened. It's a great story because this one Acts 1-8 happens. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Power, dunamis, we get the word dynamite. Man, I experienced that. And that is so true about Acts chapter 2. That is really what happened. But sometimes, perhaps, we can't always see the forest from the trees. Let's take a moment and let's go out. Maybe, you know, magnify ourselves out a little bit and take fresh eyes 
on Acts chapter 2. And perhaps Acts chapter 2 is more than just speaking in tongues. It's more than just power. It's more than just a prayer meeting. It's more than what we think it is. Perhaps Acts chapter 2 contains for us the actual template, the actual form by which the church should move in. You ready? The actual methodology of it. So backing up, Acts chapter 2, and don't, don't let's say, uh, read your Bibles per se. I'm going to read it to you because I, I don't read the whole chapter, but I put together a, just a selection of verses that happens to be in your notes. So if, if you want to follow along, follow along. But I want to read this to us and just, just as we pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation to just ignite our hearts on this verse and begin asking ourselves some questions. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven, and when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Then in verse 14, but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, all those who had gathered. Now when they heard this, they were pierced. They heard Peter's message. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Hallelujah. Isn't that great? So this, right, is what Christians, what theologians say. This is our text that we go to to say this was the first day of the church. This is where it started. This is where it was born. Now, we're going to take just for a few moments, so wake up your minds a little bit here, okay? We're going to take a few moments this evening, and we're going to look at the biblical pattern for church. In other words, this story is included here for a reason, and it's not just about speaking in tongues. Listen, we Pentecostal charismatic folks, I mean, that's pretty much all we go to Acts chapter 2 for. Just give me the tongues and give me the power, you know? Great, right? But there's actually more there than just that. There's something else very powerful going on that the Father, I believe, has given us the pattern for the New Testament church. It simply is this, prayer missions church. Now think for a second. 
Think for a second. I'm a church planter. I planted a church. All right? Start from scratch. All right? I got my little book, my little manual. This is how you plant a church. All right? And I followed all the little lists, and I did all the right things. I worked my fanny off to do it. About nearly died, I think, you know. And, and man, we established a church. We really did. We established a church. And you know what? It was successful. And it, it really grew, right? I became like the poster child for my denomination with church planting. In fact, it was so wonderful, they invited me to oversee church planting for our whole regional denomination. So I was on the committee, on the board, helping other church planters follow the recipe. This is how you do this. I'm just kind of propagating the system because it worked for me. It's going to work for you. Man, I think I completely missed it. (laughs) We planted a church and got people to come, but I don't think we made many disciples. I know we don't. We got people coming. But do we make disciples? That's a hard thing to look back on and realize that, by the way, to begin to acknowledge that reality. And then we take a fresh look at Acts chapter 2, and we begin to see something. Follow this for a second. We typically, when we think about planting a church, what you're going to tell a church pastor, right? A guy who's called to plant a church. This is what I was told. This is what you need to do. You need to go out and find you a core group of people that want to start it with you. And you start a little thing at your home, a Bible study, and have a little bit of singing. You sort of get together, and you pray to God. Somebody will come in with some money, right? that maybe we'll give you enough money to buy some land, and you can go out and buy some land, and you've got enough people in your church that we can all go sign a loan and go build a building, and you just the process starts. And, man, you've got to have this whole list of stuff. To be a legitimate church, you've got to have a youth ministry, a children's ministry, a singles ministry, a women's ministry, a men's ministry. You've got to have divorce care. You've got to have cancer care. You've got to have grief share. It means like, oh, my goodness, and so I can be a legitimate church. I've got to have all this stuff. So I'm like working my tail off so I can legitimize myself to be an authentic church and having all these things. You can see why we work ourselves to death, can't you? You can see why pastors and those in ministry will die 30% earlier than any other comparable profession. Because we're chasing this thing that we're told to do and we're killing ourselves while we're doing it. Acts chapter 2 seems to tell us If this is the pattern, it seems like to me the pattern first begins with prayer at the center. Prayer from the place of prayer. Think about what's happening. Why did those 120 people end up in that upper room? Who told them to do it? Was that like a a church manual they were reading? Who told them? Jesus, didn't he? Listen, they already knew the Great Commission. They already knew to go into all the world and preach the gospel. They got that. But Jesus said, listen, don't do that. Don't go preach. Don't go share the gospel. Don't do any of that until you go and pray and wait for the promise of the Father. I think it's really significant that the church was born in a prayer meeting from the place of prayer. Right? It started in prayer. It originated in prayer. It stayed. Prayer stayed at the center. Any wonder we kind of harp on 24-7 night and day prayer, right? Prayer at the center of it all. Intimacy with God, knowledge of God, walking with Jesus, because from the place of prayer, then what happens? They get filled with the Spirit. They all begin to speak in tongues. Do they all stay in the room and talk, talk to each other in tongues and have a good time and then go home and eat some hummus? What do they do? They spoke in tongues, and then they what? They spilled out into the street, and what happened? They began preaching. 
They began preaching the gospel. Peter stood up and he preached the gospel from this place of prayer and power. People got saved, 3,000 and more. And then what happened? They started meeting in houses. And then the churches began to develop. Do you see what's going on, right? Are you sort of trekking with me? I propose to Western Christianity that we have got the proverbial cart before the horse. We start with planting a church with people, right? We borrow the money, build a building. We start from church. Then we develop a missions program. And then we get the conduit of prayer and add it to all of our good ideas. And off we go. Do you you see it? Now, what I'm proposing to us now is really pretty serious revelation here. If this is true, like I believe it is, that means if you get the cart before the horse, you're not going to do a really good job. If you're going to drive your car in reverse all around town, you're going to have some problems. You may get to where you're going, but it's going to be a very traumatic experience for you and everybody else around you. So going in reverse is not, so the best thing to do is do it in the order that God has called us to do it. From the place of prayer comes mission. The result of mission comes the establishment of the church, the people gathering, and then they begin to enter into the place of prayer, and then outsprings mission, and then the church grows. And this was how the New Testament church for the first 300 years was done, and it was very successful. We've talked about this in the past. Jesus ministered for three years. He ministered to how many thousands of people? Did he heal? Did he feed? Did he deliver? Did he teach? Thousands, right? Especially if you add those that he, that he fed with the loaves and the fishes. I mean, thousands and thousands of people were influenced by the ministry of Jesus. But yet, only 120 would end up in an upper room out of obedience to him. There'd be those in the church planting world that would say, that is not success. If God himself started a church and worked on it for three years, and all he ended up with is 120 people, man, that's, that's a problem, God. You really didn't do a very good job. You, didn't, you should have, like, built an astrodome or something to hold all the people that should have been there. But can I tell you, he, it was a glowing success. Because he wasn't after the multitudes. He was asked after 120 disciples who knew how to make disciples. And the book of Acts tells us that that group turned the world upside down. And that we are faced with the reality that all of us are in the room today because of those 120 people 2,000 years ago. The only ones that were really obedient to Jesus to came and wait and to pray. My goodness. Is that, is that bearing witness with anybody? Do you look at that and do you just, do you just like take a moment in time and realize, oh, we need to make an adjustment this isn't, the, this isn't the time to bury our head in the sand. See no evil, evil, hear no evil, see no evil, you know, just, and just kind of wish it away. Jesus is saying, let the, for those who can hear, let them hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. Jesus would also give an indictment of a particular segment of people that would say they are ever hearing but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. You realize there are a lot of folks out there like that that are sitting in church pews, that are reading their Bibles, that are listening to sermons. They are ever hearing this stuff, but what? Never coming to the knowledge of the truth. So we have to purpose in our hearts that we are willing to transition ourselves to say, Lord, I want to come to the knowledge of this truth and be transformed by it, that we can once again become 
that church that would turn the world upside down. And that's what Jesus is doing here. That's what he's doing across the body of Christ right now. The body is, is waking up. Why? Because one of the primary missions of Jesus is to come to his own people and deliver them from what? Religion. And he's still doing it. He's doing it for you, and he's doing it for me, and he is delivering us from that unto something else. Not just from something, but unto something. The true expression of what it means to be the church. Now, very quickly, how, I mean, how, how did we end up in this mess anyway? I mean, you know, we have, we have, we have 2,000 years of church history. How did we go from, from the first 300 years with, I mean, power and conversions and miracles? How did we go from that to, I mean, like the greatest show on earth on a Sunday morning? The best sound system, best music, best rooms, best chairs, best AC units. I mean, how did we go from that to, to this? Something happened. <laughs> Let me tell you. So I described to you the current uh, situation. Let me just talk about Roman Catholic influence just for a moment. Remember, I'm not throwing the Roman Catholics under the bus because Jesus shows up at Catholic masses. He sure does. I have Catholic priests that are good friends. I have Catholics that are good friends, right? So when I talk about the Roman Catholic Church, I'm simply talking about them in an historical context, right? Not the people, but the institution of Catholicism and, and, and how it came about. I don't want to bore you with history, but basically what stopped the growth of the New Testament church was the Roman Emperor Constantine, who supposedly had this vision of a, of, of a cloud in the sky, right, of a cross, and, and he begins to realize, oh my goodness, Christianity is the right religion. Now, up to that point, all Christians were highly persecuted, highly persecuted. So Constantine, I'm going to really shorten history big time because this is, you know, 1800 years of history, you got to just cram into about five minutes. But what Constantine does is he says, oh, let's do this Christian thing. I'm going to make Christianity the national religion of the Roman Empire. So literally almost overnight, Christians went from being what? Persecuted to being what? Preferred. Now, if you were a Christian back in those days, you probably would have been shouting hallelujah. Free at last, free at last, right? But can I, can I tell you, don't always shout because it may not be the best gift for you. In other words, when things start getting really good and prosperity starts raining on your life and all is going well, you know, just take just a moment and back up and say, hmm, what could be going on here? Because, you know, the devil doesn't mind blessing people unto his end. So Emperor Constantine has this idea, and over a series of time, it begins to develop, this authority structure begins to develop, and who was the bishop of Rome at the time, what ultimately would become the pope. We've all heard of the pope, right? So then the pope would become the figurehead of the church, the primary leader of the church. The papacy would develop. Now I want you to think about this for a second. Up to this point, the Bible is being put together as the canon of Scripture, the authority of God's Word. Only basically one authority was the Bible. When the pope comes in, right, when he speaks from his papal position, it's called ex cathedra, which means from the chair, right? It means from the chair. What that means is what the Pope says is equal to Scripture, right? Because he's speaking from God. So you have the Bible, and then you have what the Pope says. So it's kind of an equal plane with each other. That's kind of the you know, mindset that begins to develop. Now, guess what happens next? 
Well, that pope dies, another pope rises, that pope dies, and much, and many church councils and whatnot begins to happen. And then what happens is another source of authority begins to develop. It's called church tradition. How previous popes did it, how previous church councils did it. Now all of a sudden you have three basic sources of authority for the church. You've got the Bible, you've got what the pope says, that's cathedral from the chair, and you've got church tradition. Are we, are we having some problems? And now, this didn't happen over a couple of years. This happened over decades and decades and generations and generations. One of the most insidious lies that inserted itself during that time was a separation between, clarity, uh, between clergy and laity. Who's ever heard those terms before? Anybody ever heard the term clergy? I used to have a little clergy sticker that I would, that I would have on my car that I could get the really good parking place at the hospital. The clergy parking. Right? So... The clergy was the ministry class, and who were the laity? Everybody else. Do you see a problem with that? Do you see anything that, about that at all that's like, um, like unscriptural? Because we are all what? We're all priests. We're all ministers, right? Some do it voc- vocationally. Some do it from the marketplace. But we're all equally ministers. So that separation between clergy and Laity became a real serious problem over the course of the church, and it, it kind of led to all problems of church tradition and control and manipulation and wrong interpretation of Scripture, and the list goes on and on and on and on. But guess what? Jesus is not afraid of what? He wasn't afraid of the Pope. He wasn't afraid of Catholicism. He wasn't afraid of all that. So where does Jesus show up? Right in the middle of religion. And he does it all the time. He's doing this, right? He goes and talks to this dude by the name of Martin Luther. And begins to stir his heart right, by the Spirit. And what does Martin Luther do? He initiates the Reformation. And Martin Luther was not perfect. But, but revival breaks out in his heart. Martin Luther, a Catholic priest himself, he begins to lead the Reformation. Revival begins to come. And we find out then revival becomes the remedy for religion. How does Jesus set us free from religion? Revival. Revival comes. And he calls us out of religion like he called Martin Luther out. Right? And one of the aspects of revival, one of the ways that you know and the one, one of those that I know that I'm being delivered from religion is revival. And all of a sudden, my complicated life all of a sudden begins to get very simplified. Jesus is the great uncomplicator. One of the ways you can detect religion in your own life is complexity. I dare say religion has a synonym, and that synonym is complexity. Because religion is required to maintain and manage all the complexity. It requires religion to keep up with all the rules and all the regulations and all the taboos and all the things you can do and you can't do. Religion is required to organize the mess, right? That's why you got to have the clergy to help figure out all this stuff to tell you little peon laity what to do. You've got to have a professional religious mind to understand the complexity of religion so they can tell you what you need to do, what you need to believe, what you should say, and whatnot. Are you, are you trekking, right? Do you see, like, the satanic scheme in the whole thing? He's slowly, like, playing Jenga with Jesus. You don't play Jenga with Jesus, right? If you take and you start pulling this out and pulling this out and pulling this out, eventually what happens is you pull one too many out and the whole thing comes down and it ceases to be the gospel and it ceases to be the church. It becomes something else altogether. And that's why Jesus, when he confronted the Pharisees, he said, you are a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. 
You have a form of godliness, but you deny the power. You become something else. And Jesus says, I need you to get back to me. I need to uncomplicate things for you. That's why he said all the law and all the prophets can be summed up in two things. Most of us in this room can probably not work out calculus or algorithms. Some of you can probably stand up and do, but most of us, I dare say, if I wrote a long, extensive algorithm on the, on the, on the board, you're going to be, oh, my God. What are you going to want to do? You're going to want to get, you're going to get a math teacher to help you figure out what that's saying right? Some of us, we present religion in such complexity, it requires the clergy to interpret the algorithm for you. Are you following me? It's not necessary. Jesus says, I'm going to really simplify this for you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I think one of our problems is, is this, is that when we look at the world, we look at America, God forbid we look at our political situation, we look at Kim Jong-un, we look, wherever we're going to look, maybe you look in the mirror at your own life, and it's complicated. You know, having been in ministry now for almost 25 years, I'm starting to realize people's lives are complicated. Issues, difficulties, I mean, really complicated stuff going on in people's lives. I mean, it keeps psychiatrists and psychologists really busy, and it keeps the pharmaceutical industry really turning on all gears to help treating all this crazy complexity in all of our lives. So what we do innately is we see the complexity of all the problems in the world and the problems in my individual life, and I make a dangerous assumption, a dangerous presumption that if the problems are so complicated, are so complex, that means the solution must be equally as complex or complicated to fix it. If the problem is, is algebra, then calculus is going to be required to fix it. Are you following me a little bit? And we, and, and we, and we fall over ourselves, and we, and we trip into that lie, and we develop complicated religious systems, perhaps well-intended to treat the ills of the day. We think we got to come up with this. We got to get, we have educated, and we have educated ourselves into absolute idiocy and stupidity. We become professionals at church and counseling and psychiatry and medicine, because we have figured out this great way that how we can deal with all the ills and all these vain attempts. And can I ask any of us in the room, has it worked? <laughs> has it worked from sea to shining sea? Has it really worked? All of our professionalization, all our honing in on our skills and our talent and our cutting edge, our cutting edge preaching and, and homiletics and methodology and music and fine-tuning everything to this perfect perfect thing how well does it work for us because we've been wrong calculus doesn't fix algebra right you know what jesus is saying yes the problems are so complicated but you know what's going to fix it is addition one plus one and there's something in our natural mind that's so adversarial to such a simple answer to such a complex problem is it any wonder that jesus said the gospel is foolishness to the wisdom of man, right? It's foolishness because the wisdom of man analyzes it so much differently than we do. It's foolishness to think that the simple one plus one can solve something that, you know, Stephen Hawking himself came up with. 
But it's that simple. And see, that's what Jesus does. Through revival, he comes into our life and he stirs us and he calls us back to the simplicity of the gospel. For it is the power of God and the salvation. I had an interesting email about four years ago. And um, I'll shorten the story, but this, but this, I got this email from this lady out of the blue. And she said, listen, I am... Um, um, I kind of live in the neighborhood. I did kind of, a, kind of a search on Google. I found your church. I'm having some marital issues and things going on. Could I come in and talk to you? Well, you're always a little bit skeptical if a woman wants to get in and talk to you. So, well, yeah, like you can make an appointment. So, you know, she came in. I made sure we were in an open room. Didn't know the person. She was probably 40 years old. She was Venezuelan, but had lived here most of her life. She had her PhD. Very educated, very smart lady. And she came down, and she began to tell me her story. She said, I really know nothing about church at all. She said, I was raised Catholic in Venezuela. The only memory I have was being molested by a priest when I was five years old. That's the really only memory that I have. And then after that, we moved to the States and really never went back to church ever again. So really all she knew was that little bit of slice. Well, she ended up getting married to this man, um, and they needed to find somebody to marry them. So they found a, a justice of the peace in Virginia, so they went and got married. And... This justice of the peace basically said, hey, you know what? Y'all really need God in your life. And um, she said, fine. And then they left. That was basically it. It didn't even hardly register on the mat. It just said, you probably need God. Well, eight years later, the marriage is totally falling apart, right? And for some reason, she remembers that one little statement from that justice of the peace eight years ago that I need God in my life, right? So she's telling me this story. And um, everything that's going on, marriage is falling apart, all kind of issues. And you know what I did? I had on my educated hat. She was a PhD. I could go toe-to-toe with her intellectually. So I could. I brought out all my therapeutic stuff. Man, I was diagnosing, slicing. I was dealing with bipolar, manic issues. I was just, we're just, we're just, and I was attaching the scripture to every single one of them. You know, and she, we're having this great conversation and just back and forth, intellectually going back and forth. And I remember the Holy Spirit just spoke to me. He said, share with her the gospel. I'm like, you know, come on, that's silly. I mean, I'm kind of weaving the gospel into all my Freud. You know, I'm getting Jesus in there with Sigmund. They're working, they're working just fine together. And I remember I just felt this overwhelming like urge, share with her the gospel. And I remember in my mind thinking, that's way too simple to deal with her issues. And when I heard my mind saying that, I said, oh, that's not right. Oh, my God, that's not right. So you know what I did? Her, her, um, her name was um, Emily was, was, her, was her name. And, and I just I said, Emily, can I, just, can I just stop the conversation? Can I tell you something? Can I tell you God loves you? Can I tell you that he sent his only son, Jesus, for you, to die on a cross for you? I mean, I, I, mean, I literally did it in preschool style. And as I'm like two minutes into the story, I all of a sudden notice these massive tears begin to come down her eyes, right? I said, holy cow, what's going on here? You know? And I'm like, I said, Emily, do you, do you, do you want to know Jesus? She said, yes. I want it more than anything else in my whole life. She had never, she had been away from church her entire life, basically. Had never read the Bible, never read a book, never been to a Billy Graham conference, didn't know anything. 
But I, as I was presenting that, she was crying. I reached out and I took her hands and she, and she asked Jesus into her heart. And I watched her whole life transform before my eyes. We wrapped up. She left. I walked out and I was saying, I felt that tall. I felt like an absolute idiot. I said, oh my God, I am so sorry. I am a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have educated myself into absolute stupidity because I'm sitting right here across from the person. I know what she needs more than anything else, yet I somehow feel like I have to offer her calculus to trump her algebra. And God said, just give her addition. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It was, that's what worked, you see. You see, this is what the church was built on. This is what revival will bring us back to. It causes us to let go of all the appendages, all the religiosity, all the arguments that we do with people, and just share within the gospel in the context of your testimony, and wow, amazing things begins to happen. You see that? That's how Jesus uncomplicates things for us. But it begins out of a place of revival. This is the gospel. So the pattern then becomes for us this. He begins to simplify things, and he says basically prayer, mission, church. He says from the place of prayer will come mission and then come church. And we're not going to get through all that tonight, but very quickly. So if, 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 if prayer is where everything begins, right, if, if prayer is the place where the church begins, from the place that we thrive in. Most of us, when we hear the word prayer, we're like, yeah, God is great, God is good, let us thank Him for our food, now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep. And really, that's pretty much the extent of our prayer life, right? It's like we want to pray over our food, Lord, thank you for this double whopper with cheese and extra large fries, I thank you for this food, God, protect me from this stuff, right? I mean, our, 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 our prayer life is, you know, nothing more than a sanctimonious religious act that really doesn't mean much of anything. I guarantee you, in my experience in church, if you call a what? Prayer meeting. It's almost guaranteed to be the most um, um, lightly attended event in church. A prayer meeting. But I'll tell you what, if you say we're going to have a worship night with hot dogs in the lobby, people will pile in. Give me some good music and a good hot dog, and I'm all in. Now, why is that, right? Because somewhere along the way, we don't even know what prayer is anymore. We don't even know the purpose of prayer, right? What's going on with prayer? Because prayer ultimately answers this simple question, right? And we've talked about this in the past, but it bears repeating that, that prayer answers this question, what does God really want? What does God really want? Why is he calling us to pray? Matthew 6, 9, Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray. They came to him. They said, Jesus, teach us to pray. Remember that? Teach us to pray. So they saw Jesus doing something that they wanted to do too. He said, pray this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know, those words, our Father, is really significant. Because I believe that's why the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. They weren't unfamiliar with the act of prayer. They knew how to pray. They, they, they learned from the Pharisees. They understood long, eloquent words and how to pray. But they saw something with Jesus. They saw an intimacy Jesus had with his Father. And they said they were compelled and they were drawn in to that. And they said, Jesus, teach us to pray. You know one of the best ways to enhance your prayer life is get around people who know how to pray. I'm serious. I can't pray that way. Well, you may not be able to now, but get around with people who do. Get around people who do. 
That's what they did. They got around Jesus. They knew how to pray. And he taught them, this is how you go to God. Not just as Yahweh or Elohim or Adonai, those great descriptors of our awesome God, but you can call him Father. Intimacy. They had never seen or, 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 or understood that before. And they began to pray because we realize that God ultimately desires us. We like to joke about if there was a subtitle for the Bible, Bible, God the Great Wedding Planner. That's what I would be, that's, to me, that would be the subtitle of the Bible, the Great Wedding Planner. Because this whole thing God is doing is arranging a wedding for his son. And that's all in the context of what? Relationship. So what does prayer mean? Prayer means that, that he, he, wants, he wants to know us. He wants to know us. A part of my personal testimony, um, I like to share this every chance I get because it's, it, it's so radically transformed my life about three and a half years ago. I had reached a place in ministry where I was just kind of burned out. You know, you know, things weren't bad. Things weren't great. Just kind of mediocre, right? You're just kind of going through the motions. I, I remember we were on vacation one year, and I was praying, saying, God, please help me. Please help me. Lord, I'll, I'll do anything. Whatever you want me to do, Lord, I'll do it. I mean, really, I was at that. I was at, ever, ever been to that place in your life? Whatever you want me to do, God, I'll do it. I'll do cartwheels. I'll move to Siberia. I'm serious. Whatever you want me to do. So I did the great Bible study, opened the Bible, started flipping through, and, and I just opened up randomly to John chapter 6, began reading John chapter 6. That's the passage where Jesus gives all the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I'm just kind of reading through, and I came down around verse 22, and when the disciples came to Jesus and said, what shall we do to do the works of God? And I just like stopped right there, dead in my tracks. I said, yes, God, that's my prayer. Just like the disciples 2,000 years ago, what shall I do to do the works that you've called me to do? Yes, that's my, and then my eyes, I remember the moment, my eyes fell back to the page, and I read the next statement, and Jesus replied, believe in the one whom the Father had sent. Now, in one crashing moment of the spirit of wisdom and revelation, in Ephesians 1, it happened in a nanosecond. I saw with perfect clarity that I had asked a doing question and Jesus gave a being response. The disciples said, what do you want me to do? Jesus said, I need you to believe in the one the Father had sent. In that moment in time, something in my heart crystallized and changed. And it became a Rosetta Stone, which caused me to look in the rearview mirror of my previous 20 plus years of serving Jesus. And it helped me to interpret my entire Christian life up to that point. I realized that my whole relationship with God was built around doing and not about being. That I primarily identified with Jesus as my king, and I was his servant. And I was a perfectionist. I was a doer. I was, I mean, I was, that was my, that worked perfectly in my hardwiring, right? You tell me what to do, and I'll do it just right. In that moment, I realized that I'm not supposed to work for God, I'm supposed to work with God in the context of relationship. Now, it took a while for that to work its way through my entire spiritual being, but it ultimately radically shifted my life. And in that moment, I began to realize, oh, oh, this is what prayer is. This is what it's all about. It's about me working with Jesus, not working for Jesus. 
Because the point is, God doesn't need you to get something done. Do you realize that? That God really is not depending upon you to do some task he needs done. Do you think God could do a better job of it than you could do anyway? Do you think God could make a rock praise him better than you can praise him? That's not the point. What's he after? He's after you. He's after relationship. He's after to walk with me, talk with me, as the old song says, a long life's way, right? That's what he's after. That's why he said, you yoke yourself up with me because my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Yoke yourself with me, son, let's do this together. And you know what happened? I'm telling you, in that moment, everything in my life began to pivot. And then all of a sudden, ministry became so much easier. It did. The angst went away. The striving went away. The running like a chicken with your head cut off went away. Trying to live up to some expectation I had received from myself or from somebody else where I thought God expected all went away. And you know what happened? I think the Bible calls it a peace that passes understanding. To know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. Something that transcended understanding. Something that went beyond, beyond knowledge. That can only come through the place of prayer and intimacy with Jesus. I am convinced the reason Jesus told those believers to go to that upper room was to establish that. To yoke themselves to Jesus. Right? That's why he did that. Because it's from that place of intimacy with God, from that place of walking with him, will come the doing, will come the ministry, will come everything else. But what happens is if we invert the process and we get the proverbial cart before the horse and we start off with building a church and building a thing all based on doing and launch into missions and we treat prayer like salt and pepper, like, like the condiment of all we're doing, we miss the whole point, right? That's not what God's after. He's after us. And he chooses not to do it without us because he wants to do it with us. That's the beauty of God, right? That's the beauty of Jesus. He chooses not to do it on his own. He wants to do it with us. And it establishes something so beautiful in our life. Let me, I'm going to kind of end there. I was going to kind of end with one, 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 quick, one quick thought. And y'all can read the notes on your own. They're pretty, I think they're pretty self-explanatory. So what about the tongues thing? All right, because when, when you think of Acts 2, that becomes, the, that, becomes the, that becomes the proof text for all of us charismatic Pentecostal folks that try to like to ramrod tongues down everybody in Christianity's throat. And listen, I was one of those guys. I thought it was my mission from the Lord to get every Baptist, Methodist, and Catholic speaking in tongues. I figured if I got them speaking in tongues, I had done my job. Glory to God. Right? I really thought that. Lord, forgive me, you know. I thought that. But I missed the whole point. You know, why did, why, why was the gift of tongues the first gift of the Spirit? that the Father chose to manifest in Acts chapter 2, the first gift that he gave. Right? We have the preaching. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's all part of it. But I think it's a little deeper than that, actually. Right? I think it goes back to from the place of prayer. Now, follow me just for just, just a moment about speaking in tongues. Because if there was ever been an issue in the church of Jesus Christ that has brought more division and more misunderstanding and more arguing and more fighting, and more denominational splits is speaking in tongues. Glossolalia in Greek, speaking in other languages. So why would God do something like that initially 
knowing full well it was going to be so controversial in the years to come. Could he have done something else? Like healing the sick or working in miracles? Or, but he chose that. Why? Right? I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you why. It goes back to answering the fundamental question of what does God want? What does he want? He wants intimacy and relationship with you. Let me give you an example. I'm not sure any of you that have, have had the opportunity to have a baby in the house or have a child. You've had a chance to be a mom or a dad. Do you remember when your little baby first began to make verbal sounds? You know, the gaga, goo goo, wah wah, la la, moulet, whatever it is, right? Do you, you remember that? I mean, we gawk and coo and all this stuff. It's just, it's just so cool. Let me ask you a question. What language is that baby speaking? Anybody want to tell me? Baby talk? I mean, is it speaking Spanish, English, French, Latin, ancient Hebrew? What is it? But let me ask you a question. Is the baby talking? Is the baby communicating? Is the baby making an effort to communicate with someone? So we all are agreeing that the baby is communicating. We're all agreeing that the baby is communicating in in an unknown language. That the baby is communicating from his heart through his larynx and not his mind. That's what's happening, right? In fact, I believe some of the purest forms of heart communication is the initial babblings of a little baby. Because the mama knows exactly what that baby's saying, doesn't he? If you're a mom or a dad, especially moms, right? They know whatever God, who God, they know exactly what the baby's talking about. <laughs> I remember my wife, oh, the diaper needs to be changed. How did you know? How? Oh, the baby needs something to eat. Baby needs to be turned over. The baby's with the baby. I mean, I mean, she knew she could understand exactly what the baby was saying. So the baby was articulating something, right? In a non-earthly language that mama completely understood. Has anybody jumped ahead of the story where I'm going with this? Right? It's the most purest form of heart communication from a baby to a parent. Right? Is it any wonder that Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven? Is it any wonder that Jesus wants us to know him? intimately and deeply and profoundly because what ultimately happens as that little baby begins to grow up those sounds begin to turn into a language right if they grew up in a house or mom and dad speak in english that baby's one day going to say dad dad mama cat dog and then from then they can't shut them up right <laughs> because what happens is the communication, the verbal communication that once flowed right from the heart to the parent now begins to go through and is processed through the mind and articulated in a language. Right? Now everything that we say comes through a natural language. I'm trying to belabor the point to make a really important point. You see, have you ever had the experience of wanting to say something but didn't quite have the words to say it? Have you ever found yourself saying to somebody, I wish I could tell you what I'm feeling. 
And you begin to tell them and wrap it around with, with human language, but it's so insufficient to describe what you're really feeling. Have you ever had that moment before? That it's just not enough. I know when I first told my wife and I realized I loved her and wanted to marry her, I mean, I was just like, I love you. I, I, lo I love you. I mean, I really love you. But I even felt like when I was saying the word love, it just wasn't enough. You know, it's like, ooh, I just, I just can't get enough out of this. So I just went, eh, I love you. I beg you to marry me. Please, God, marry me. It's a shame I was just 12 years old. But please, <laughs> marry me when it's legal. All right? So it is in the divine wisdom of God then, right, to give us this amazing tool, right? This, this gift called glossolalia, this gift called tongues, that enables us to become like a little child again, to communicate in the most infantile, purest form, heart language, back to the Father. And Romans 8, 28 says what? When you don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit helps you in your weakness with groans that words cannot express. So I believe, and I put before all of us, that prayer is the center. And one of the ways we know it's the center is because God chose the gift of tongues initially because what it does, it enables the believer to communicate with the Father without going through the constraints of the natural mind and the limitations of human language. Amen? That's the real reason. It's not to sound impressive at the altar. It really hidden. It's, it's not. It's not to show off in church. <laughs> not that anybody here does that. But it's to help us know Jesus better because the mind gets in the way, but our spirit can communicate with him. Look at it like this, and I promise we'll end here. See this? I like this illustration. What is this? It's a smartphone, right? It's probably smarter than most of us. Smartphone. Now, I will be quite honest with you. This is a marvel of technology. Would everybody agree with that? It's some really smart people develop this sucker. I mean, this thing is your calendar. This thing is the internet. This thing is the contacts. This thing is app after app after app. I mean, it can do everything. It can, it can, I mean, it can slice bread. It can do it all. <laughs> and it can even, get this, it can even make a phone call. It can even do that too. It can do all this stuff. And can I tell you something? I have no idea how this works. I really don't. I could not explain to you scientifically how this works, but it doesn't prevent me from using it. If knowing how something works prevented me from using it, what would we be able to even really do? Right? So just because you don't understand something doesn't mean you can't use something. <laughs> I don't understand how it all works either. Now, I will tell you the engineers of this phone was really smart because you know what they did? They did something really cool. Do you know what they did? I have an iPhone, so... Look at this. Look at that. Isn't that really cool? Do you know what these little things are called? Icons, right? The little things that I, I can like, I can go right to my phone by hitting that button. I can go right to my contacts by hitting that button. I can go right to Google Maps by hitting that button. Right? I can play Clash of Clans by going to that button. No, just kidding. I can, no, I can, I can do all that just by hitting some button. Do you know what they tell you in computer engineering school? They call this an interface. Don't they, Right? It's a very simple program designed to be an interface, a simple program to connect you with a complicated program, right? Simple 
to connect to complicated. Because nobody probably wants to, to, to see all the coding that went into this, right? Some of you computer programmers know exactly what I'm talking about. You wouldn't be able to work through all the coding, would you? But the, but the engineers were smart enough to realize all these people aren't as smart as we are. So we're going to have to give them something really simple so they can communicate with complexity. That the simple-minded can communicate with complexity. Speaking in tongues is nothing more than an interface that God gives us to communicate with him. That's what it is. Because God's complex. God's infinite. God is big. And he desires to reveal himself to us. So the gift of speaking in tongues is very much a private matter. And it's a way for us to deepen in our relationship with Jesus. Right? That's kind of what it's about. People say, do I have to speak in tongues? No, you don't have to speak in tongues. Do I have to speak in tongues to be saved? No, right? But it's one of the, one of the little cherries on the, on the icing, you know, on the cake that the Lord gives us to help us to know him better. And that's why when we see at the day of the church that all, did, did you kind of notice that in that little verse? Kind of interesting, right? It didn't just say two or three in the corner spoke in tongues. What did it say? All, 120 spoke in tongues. The Bible says to eagerly desire spiritual gifts. The Father says, if you then, though are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? So I always tell people, do you have to? Of course not. You get to. <laughs> you get to. And it enhances that place of prayer and intimacy with God that he has ultimately called us to. And that 120 people in an upper room so long ago began with that at the center of it all. Relationship and intimacy with God that will ultimately produce 3,000 converts that in would also become disciples and that they would start and the whole world would be turned upside down because of them. Amen? So let's reimagine the church together, right? Let's be willing to ask ourselves the hard question. Let revival have its way in your heart and my heart. Let Jesus uncomplicate and simplify things for us. Let's take a fresh look at what the Bible is really saying and really get back to the simplicity of one plus one and get away from the religious algebra that wishes to be imposed upon us by a religious system that's driven by, by clergy and traditions of man that we have inherited over generations and generations and generations. Jesus is showing up. He's knocking at your heart, and he's knocking at my heart, and he's echoing the words of Isaiah 14, Behold, I am doing a new thing, declares the Lord. Will you not perceive it? Don't be one of the people. Don't be one of the people that is ever hearing, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Right? Don't be one of those people. Come to the knowledge of the truth. Seek God. Seek God. And he can do more for you that moment when God revealed to me John chapter 6. It didn't take years of counseling. I didn't have to read a whole library of Christian books. I didn't have to bury myself in front of TBN for seven straight days. Not that all that's bad. You know how that happened? It came out of a desperate heart, crying out to God for something I didn't have. And then what had happened? Then Jesus responded and said, I'm fixing to do something in you that's going to change everything. And guess what? 
I didn't cry. I didn't fall on the floor, floor and flop around like a fish. I didn't dance. It was almost in the natural a non-event, if you were looking at it. But something so deep shifted in my heart and transformed everything. Amen? Let's stand together. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for your grace to gather around your word and truth. Lord, we recognize tonight, God, that for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so much higher are your thoughts and our thoughts and your ways and our ways. Lord, we don't pretend for one moment we have this thing figured out. Oh, God, we only prophesy in part. We look through a glass dimly. And God, from that understanding, God, it produces such humility in us where we humble ourselves under your mighty hand and we say, Jesus, have your way. Forgive us, Lord, for claiming to know anything. Forgive us for boasting in our own knowledge. Lord, your word says that knowledge will just puff up. But Lord, it's, it's your love that builds up. So, Lord, we humble ourselves under your mighty hand. And, God, strip us from, from all assumption and pretense. And, God, we just humble ourselves. Lord, may we be like the Apostle Paul song ago that would come and say, we don't know anything but in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Lord, that's what we know. And through the lens of the cross, through the blood of Jesus, we approach your word and your Holy Spirit. And we say, teach us. Because we become like little children. And the best we know how, Lord, we, we, we open ourselves up to the spirit of wisdom and revelation. For as much as, it is, as, as much as we can endure of your words, Jesus, we want it. Lord, we want, to, we want as much as you think we can handle, Lord. We want it, God. And we recognize in that prayer, we recognize ahead of time, Lord, it is going to hurt. It is an invitation with challenge. That it is going to hurt and it is going to dig deep and it is going to be painful but it's going to be good and it's going to be worth it and it's going to be life. It is going to be joy and it's going to be peace. So Jesus, do what you did 2,000 years ago. Do what you did 1,000 years ago. Do what you did for Martin Luther. Do what you did, God, for all those great and small throughout the years. Deliver your people from religion. Deliver us, oh God, from religion. Lord, wherever there's a vestige of it, wherever there's a tentacle of it or a vine of it, we say, Lord, rid our hearts of it, rid our souls of it, renew our minds from it. Spirit of the living God, we yield to you to do whatever needs to be done. Let your double-edged sword have its way, God, that we would be free, that we would know you in the power of your resurrection, in the fellowship of your suffering. And may the years that we remain on this planet, God, be fully yielded to you, that we can maximize kingdom expansion, God, around us and in our families and in our workplaces and in our spheres of influence. We say, do it, oh God. We make ourselves available to you in this moment the best we know how. In the strong and mighty name of Jesus, we pray and believe. And all of us said together, Amen.